Hi, everybody. My name is Polly Pistol, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going to give you all my credentials just as soon as I get my clock started here. Uh, okay. My name's Polly Pistol, and I'm an alcoholic. By God's grace, in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink since April the 11th of 1977. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I have a home group, and that's the West Connect Group in Jacksonville, Florida. I have a sponsor. Her name is Rena Kay. And she has absolutely become the busiest woman in Alcoholics Anonymous. She is amazing. And I'm going to talk a little bit in my talk about sponsorship, because I am a firm believer in sponsorship. And uh, I have a home group. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. I sponsor. And the women I sponsor, sponsor. And the women they sponsor, sponsor. And so on and so forth. And uh, I am so excited, Lon and Doug, thank you so much for asking me to speak at our hometown convention, having in Jacksonville, Florida, because I live here. This is not the first time I've talked in Jacksonville, Florida. But it's the first time I've talked in Jacksonville, Florida, since I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I spoke at this convention when I lived somewhere else. And uh, I am just so grateful to be able to be a participant in this conference and to be able to... I, it kind of got rocky getting here because my husband is ill, and it's kind of got rocky us getting here to when it started, but I had the privilege of working on it before it started. So that's uh, that's you know that's wonderful, and I'm just excited for every everything that everybody's done for me. It's just been fabulous, and uh, you already heard Beth and uh, talk, and I'm gonna her and I relate, and I relate to Beth, and she probably relates to me because I am also an only child. And uh, there's a lot of little stuff that goes along with that, especially if you're an alcoholic and you love people. Being an only child is a tough road. And uh, at any rate, you're going to end for amazing treats, the speakers that are going to follow me. And uh, what I am just so excited about is I know them, and they're great. And I'm just, and I'm a, I'm just so excited you're going to be here. But uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous gives me instructions of what I'm supposed to do at this podium. I am supposed to share my experience, strength, and hope. I am supposed to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what I'm trying to be like today. And I'm going to do that to the very best of my ability. And uh, I want to just start by saying that if having a tragic childhood as a prerequisite for alcoholism, I shouldn't be here because that is not my story. My story is that I was a loved and cherished little girl. My parents loved me so much. They didn't have a lot of money, but they did everything they could to give me everything any little girl would want to have. The sad thing about all of that was is that whatever it is that is inside of me, that it makes me mentally and bodily different from my fellows, has always been there, whatever that is. So what happened for me is I never appreciated anything that my parents did. And there's another big book that says there's nothing worse than an ungrateful child. And that's what I was, an ungrateful child, because my parents would have done anything to make me happy. 
And uh, one of the things that I kind of I related with with Beth was too. Her mother worked, and she was an only child. My mother worked, and I was an only child. The only difference I think is a couple of generations apart from Beth, because Beth's the age of my kids. And what happened is, I'm 80, almost 81 years old. And when I was a little girl, mothers didn't work. Nobody's mother worked that I knew, but my mother worked. And because of that, no little girls could come to my house after school because my mother wasn't home. I was a latchkey kid before it was ever, you know, ever popular. And I was embarrassed and ashamed of that, that my mother worked. Because her working, all the other little girls didn't. My mother was also an amazing seamstress. And the reason that my mother worked is, the, is because my parents did not have a lot of money. But she worked so that I could have dancing lessons and gymnastic lessons and everything any little girl would want. And when I was a little girl, or when I was young, going to school and high school, we always had formals. I don't know if you guys remember that, if some of you are my age. Always had formals. And these big ones, you know, with the, with the petticoats and everything under them. And my mother would make mine. She was a gorgeous seamstress. And she would make my clothes. And I was ashamed of that. I wanted to buy clothes, like everybody else got to buy clothes. So I was never even appreciative for all of those things that she did for me. And I did not even realize all that. Thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that helped me to see what I never could see before. Uh, also, I was raised Southern Baptist. and. Uh, I can remember as a little girl going to church, and I would go to church, and first I'd go to Sunday school, and you'd sit in Sunday school, and all we'd talk about how much Jesus loved us, and we'd color, and pictures of Jesus, and then we'd go into the big church, and these preachers, they were standing at the podium, and their faces were red, and their veins were sticking out, and they were screaming into the congregation, you're born a sinner. You're going to burn in hell. And I was terrified of God. I just knew God was going to get me. And I'd just sit there and think about, oh, how did I get so bad so fast? And, you know, just all of, you know, just all of that stuff. But already I was very ungrateful for what my parents had done. So, uh, so my childhood, that was, my childhood was, was so good. But what I can see is I never saw it till I got sober. And I am so grateful for the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because today I know that my parents gave me a gift. And that gift is the thing that I feel like is the greatest gift any parent could give a child. And they gave me the gift of love. They loved me. And today they not only told me, they showed me how much they loved me. And today, I feel like that went in my DNA, even when I didn't know it was going in, that that love went inside of me, that they gave me. When I was 18 years old, I married an Air Force officer. And I just knew I found my knight in shining armor, and we were going to sail off into the sunset and live happily ever after. I had married a bomber pilot. And this man was going to be gone, and he was going to be gone for years at a time. And I was going to have to be responsible for my life, and I would end up having two little boys, and I would have to be responsible for their lives. And I had no idea how to do that. See, I didn't understand that inside of me was this selfish, self-centered person who really did not have a clue how to give to anybody else. And I had these little boys. And I was very young and very immature. And uh, when we got married, I had a big church wedding. 
and his first duty station was Mather Air Force Base in Sacramento, California. And I'm a hick from Texas. And I'm telling you, we went to California. We spent a few days of our honeymoon in Yosemite, and I thought God had dropped me in heaven, that I'd never in my life seen anything so beautiful. And we went to this, we got it, you know, we went to Mather to uh, start his tour. He was going through uh, B-47 training. And we would be stationed there for one year for him to train in this bomber. And uh, so we went to, and we, you know, everything was going along great. We met some other people and stuff like that. I haven't taken a drink yet because that Baptist church also said, thou shalt not drink. And I didn't. And I had not taken a drink of alcohol. And what happened was, is I got this invitation in the mail, and it had a big red mandatory stamped on it. And it was from the base commander's wife. And this invitation said that I was invited to a coffee given by her. And my husband said, you have to go. It's mandatory. And I got my first lesson and what it was, what I was going to learn about being an Air Force officer's wife. And I went to that coffee. I was terrified because I knew I was 18 years old. I had just graduated from high school. I had graduated in June. I got married the following March. I was, uh, I was, I just, I was so happy to be married, but I didn't know what, how to fit into this world. And, uh, I knew that those women were going to be educated, and I knew they were going to be sophisticated, and I was none of that. I was none of that. And so I went to that coffee that day, and I was so terrified. And that base commander's wife, she stood at a podium just like this, and all of us little second lieutenant's wives were sitting at tables like they are here in the front. And she began to tell us what our responsibility was to enhance our husband's career, how we would be expected to attend all the, all any, any activity, anything that happened that we were supposed to be to that included anything he did, and that I was always to be at any function that was given by the Air Force officers' wives. I was to be there. And I just sat there, and I was to go to dinner parties. I was to have dinner parties. And I sat there, and I thought, I am a hick from Texas. We do not sit down to play settings. We just sit down and eat. And I just, I mean, I had no idea what this was all about. So when that coffee was over, I went to the nearest bookstore and got a book on etiquette to learn how I could do what I was expected to do. And uh, two weeks later, there was an officer's wives' luncheon. And again, I was expected to be there. This, this base commander's wife also told us that we would always be dressed appropriately. We would wear the right leaf link gloves depending on the time of day. Now, of course, that's gone many years ago. That just really dates me. And uh, we always wore hats. And uh, just all the stuff that nothing goes, nothing's like that anymore. And uh, I went to that luncheon that day, and they had all these little tables sitting around, and they were ready for us to have lunch, and they were so cute. But they had a long table, just about like this. Uh, Maybe two of them. No, I think maybe one of them, just like this. And on one end of it was little glasses, and on this end was a big fountain, and it had this liquid coming out of it. And these ladies were picking up the glass, and they were putting it under that fountain. And what I did is I picked up a glass, and I put it under that fountain. And I took a drink that day. And uh, I had no idea what would happen to me that day. But what happened to me is my life was altered forever. I would never, ever be the same again. I took that drink of alcohol. And I can tell you, I can remember that drink as if it were yesterday. I can remember taking that drink. I remember how warm it was going down my throat. I was always anxious. I'm just kind of like I still am today. Always kind of uptight, a little anxious, but worse. Just 
not no confidence. And I took that drink, and all of a sudden, everything just just like what Dr. Silkworth says, that feeling of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. I had felt that that come at once. And I put my glass up under that fountain again, and I took another drink. Now that day, I did not get drunk and falling down. To my knowledge, that was only those two little glasses that I had, had absolutely no idea what had happened to me that day. All I knew was, is I would do that again. And what happened is, is my alcoholism kind of gradually grew for a while. Because I didn't drink all the time, usually just when we went out to dinner or we went to somebody else's uh, house. And at this time, when I first started drinking, uh, my husband was in school. He was in a, for a year in training. So he hadn't left yet. He hadn't gone overseas yet. And so what happened is we would soon have, we would soon be stationed somewhere else. He would not be present for the first child, nor would he not be present for the second child of the birth. So, I mean, I was beginning, I got pregnant and had our first son. He was born in 1960. I was 19 years old when I had him. It was a little about a year and a half later from when I had gotten married. I was 19 years old, and two years later, I had another son. Very typical of how the military works. I mean, he was never present for either one of the children. But one of the things that I think, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not aware that women were not supposed to like women. I'm telling you, I was a military wife. Let me tell you, we took care of each other. We helped each other have babies. We helped each other when kids were sick. We helped each other. And that's the, and so I thought women, you know, that's what we did. Women helped each other. That's what they did. And that's what happened. We always helped each other. I was talking to a friend of mine that was in the military that I hadn't talked to her in years. And she says, I never will forget when I had Steve and how my mother came to help. And you, you know, she went with me to the hospital and you took the kids. And that's just how we, that's how we lived. And when I came to AA, I already knew, even though I got, my libido had come alive when I came to AA, I liked the men. But I knew where the help was, was with the women. And uh, at any rate, uh, my, my alcoholism was gradual. I had no idea that anything was happening. And by the time, two or three years, it was probably three or four years before I was getting bad. But it just kind of gradually, we just do it when we go out. And then pretty soon it became drinks before dinner. You had to have a martini before dinner. And then it was drinks with dinner. And then I would go out with my girlfriends or we'd get together and have drinks while we were taking care of our babies and visiting. And the next thing, it was drinks after dinner and after dinner and after dinner. It was definitely what the book talks about. With me, it was a progression. By the time my sons are six and eight years old, I am a falling down, blackout drinker. And uh, I come to and I find out that I have thrown my child into the wall by my oldest son. And my children were just looking at me. And I, what would happen is, is I'd go into a blackout and I would start screaming at my children. I would just, I was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I would start screaming at my children. I would start hitting my children. And I just absolutely became a child abuser. And that would go on. By the time my kids were 10 and 12 years old, I could no longer put them to bed at night, and I can no longer get them up in the morning for school. And I'm going to steal a a piece of my son's story, because I have a son in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my son says that what happened for him He was 10 years old, and he walked into the kitchen to fix his breakfast. My children had to set an alarm clock and get themselves up in the morning. 
He, he got up, went into the kitchen, and saw me passed out, laying on the floor. And as he says in his talk, I assessed the situation. I walked in, I stepped over my mother, I got my cereal, the milk, whatever, stepped back over my mother, and sat down and ate, probably not much further than I am from this table. He sat down, and he said, I absolutely felt nothing. That is an abnormal reaction to that scene. But it's not abnormal if you see it day after day after day. It is not an abnormal scene. And what happened is that was normal for him to even look at something like that. Uh, In 1974, my husband was medically retired. He was, uh, what happens a lot of times as as, uh, people fly for a long time and they get enough hours, they're taken out of the cockpit and they get jobs that are on the ground and they no longer have to fly the bombers. And this had happened to him. And this was during the Vietnam War and it was right at the end of the war at the Vietnamization. And he had flown many, many trips uh, into Vietnam in a bomber. But he had, now he was on the ground and he was going to be an advisor. And he was stationed in Da Nang. And uh, he came back and went to the National Security Agency in Was- right outside of Washington, D.C. And he was at work one day and they called me that my husband had collapsed. And he ended up spending a year in the hospital in uh, Andrews, Air Force Base, Andrews Air Force Base Hospital, and then he was retired. And we, made, and we moved back to Texas, where we were from. And uh, at that time, uh, he was in that hospital for a year, and I was a very bad alcoholic. And when we got back home, I could not take care of him. I was, I was just too bad of an alcoholic to take care of my husband. I was incapable. So I can't care for my children. I can't care for my husband. And by 1976, my daddy is is in Abilene, Texas, three hours away, dying of colon cancer, and I can't go see him because I don't have a child that drives, and my husband can't drive, and I'm too drunk to drive to go see my dad, and I'm his only child. Uh, at, uh, in, ni- in January of 1977, my husband looked at me and he said, Polly, there's a treatment center and it's not far from our house and I wish you would go. And uh, this was a county detox center and it was not far from our house. And I went to this detox center. It was not a treatment center. It was a detox center. And I got in there and they gave us some just absolutely fabulous drugs, and I didn't wake up until the next day, and uh, they told me to get dressed and go into the day room. Now, through this whole thing that I'm telling you about with my alcoholism, I want you to know that I did not know another alcoholic, and I still, to this day, do not know anybody who is an alcoholic that we were with while we were in the, while we were in the Air Force. I still don't know anybody. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure there were alcoholics everywhere. I just didn't know them because it, kind of, it was kind of a tight group of people that hung out. And uh, so I went into this day room. Now, these people were cussing like sailors. They were saying the F word, and I didn't say the F word at that time. Now, I will assure you I'm really good at it today, <laughs> but I didn't do it then. And I looked around at these people, and I was just... Oh, my God. And I sat down, and if you've ever been in a detox center or treatment, everybody sits around and tells war stories. I'm sure you, Marion and Peter, hear that all the time. They just tell, everybody's sitting around telling their war story. And I'm listening to these people, and they're, they're divorced. They've been to jail. Oh, my God, some of them have been to prison. They're talking, they're cussing like sailors. And I just looked, and I said... I don't, I'm not like these people. I, I don't belong here. These are, the, I'm not like that. And I stay there for about three days, and uh, I'm 36 years old. 
and my libido comes alive. Now, it's been dead for a long time because my husband had been sick for a long time. My libido comes alive, and I'm telling you, those guys in detox started to look good. <laughs> and they looked so good, I ran off of one. And we stayed sober for 58 days. And I ended up being 12-stepped in a hotel room in Euless, Texas, and brought back into that detox center. And I was 12-stepped by the man who was the director of that detox center. And I was brought back into that treatment center. And uh, they, you know, same, same thing, only very different. When he brought me back in there, I knew that there was no way that I was going to live. I knew that God was going to punish me. I am going to burn in hell anyway. You cannot do what I had done. You cannot treat your children, your parents, your husband. You can't do what then. That was my understanding of God. That was what I knew about God. And I knew that there was no way that I could ever be good enough for God. And I certainly wasn't now. And so I just got through that detox and when that detox was over, I got a bottle of scotch and I got a bottle of Valium and I checked into a motel. Uh, the, one of the things that I am so grateful for is God continually interferes in my life without my permission. <laughs> Continues to interfere in my life without my permission. Because a woman I worked with said something came over her. And I know today that something was God. And she drove, she said, she started to look for me. She just said, she just got in her car and started to look for me. And she found my car parked outside this motel. And uh, I hadn't shut the door all the way. I just closed it, but it hadn't latched. And she pushed the door open and she found me laying there. And on April the 8th, of 1977, I was pronounced dead on arrival at a hospital in Bedford, Texas. But God continues to interfere in my life without my permission. And if you try to commit suicide, even in 1977, just like 2021, you are going to get the attention of the authorities. And what happened was I got sent on a 72-hour hold and sent to a psychiatric hospital, which gave my husband enough time to obtain a court order from a Fort Worth judge that I was a detriment to myself and others, and I was court-committed to treatment. I entered that treatment center on April the 11th of 1977. Now... I did not ask for my husband to take me to that detox center the first time. I certainly didn't ask for Frank to 12-step me out of that motel and bring me back to that detox center. I did not ask for my girlfriend to drive around and look for me. And I certainly did not ask for my husband to court commit me to treatment. In fact, I was furious. All of those things happened without my permission. And I stand here today 44 years sober because of acts in my life that I didn't want and was furious that were happening. And uh, what happened in that treatment center is that people started coming in that treatment center and taking us out to meetings. And people started coming into that treatment center and reading the big book to us. And they, they started taking us out to meetings. And what happened is, as I started to fall in love with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I am so grateful I stayed in that treatment center six weeks. I am so grateful that that's what they did, that they took us and introduced us 
to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because that passion began to grow. And what I am so grateful for is I have never, ever lost that passion. I've never been any length of time without going to an AA meeting. I've never been away from AA in any way in the 44 years I've been sober. I have always found a way to be in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because when I'm with you, it's when I feel the best. It's when I'm with you. And I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. And they told us in that treatment center, you need to get a sponsor. And the only person I could think of to sponsor was that director of that detox center. And what I did is I asked him if he would sponsor me. And he said he would. He said, but don't you show up at my house until... Uh, don't show up at my house until after you have... Don't call me and don't, don't call me anymore from the treatment center, is what he said. Show up at my house the day you get out. That was my first sponsorship direction. Show up at my house the day you get out. And I showed up at his house. And what happened that day is I announced to him I was on my sixth step. And uh, <laughs> he said... That is treatment center psychobabble. He said, you are not on your sixth step. You are on your first step. And that day, he took me through steps one, two, and three and laid out the four-column inventory that I use today on all the women I sponsor exactly the way it was laid out to me 44 years ago. I still do it the same way. And he laid it out, and he said, that was, that was Sunday, and he said, you be back next Sunday to give me your fifth step. And I came back the next Sunday. And uh, on my fifth step, when I, I get, did my first fifth step, I only had five things. I had my mother and my dad, my husband, the Baptist Church, and the United States Air Force. I had my children. I said, I don't have any resentments around my children. And he had me put my children on harm's done. And so I put my children on harm's done. And what he did that I do as well is before he had me read my inventory, he said, before you tell me your story, tell me your parents' story. And that's what I did. And when I began to read my, my parents, the inventory, I had such a compassion for my parents because both of my parents, the most outstanding thing about my parents is both of, their, both of them, their mothers had died at birth. And one of them uh, had what I'm sure today is postpartum depression, my mother's mother. And she was put in a sanitarium, and I'm sure she just died of a broken heart and depression. Because she, but she never saw her mother again. My daddy's mother died when he was born, and she died of the flu. And I have just connected those dots since we have been in this pandemic. Because my parents were born in 1918. And that's when the Spanish flu was what, like what we have today. And I'm sure what happened is, is that my grandmother died of the Spanish flu. So I connected those dots. And both of my parents' stepmother did not, I can remember, didn't love them or didn't like them. And I can even remember asking my grandmother one time, why don't you like my mother? And... Uh, you know, that's what I felt. I felt her dislike for my mother. And what happened was, is they, that gave me such a passion and such an understanding of what my parents' life was about before and what they gave to me. I was so able to see how much my parents had loved me when I gave that inventory that day. I was able to see how much they loved me. And then I told, you know, I told him on there I had my sons 
And then harm's done. You tell what you've done, the harms you've done. And I told, I said that. And Frank looked at me, and he said, I had thought, I knew this all along. I knew. But I just didn't have the guts to say it. He said, Polly, you're a child abuser, and you're going to go make amends to your sons. And I, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you go to the, my sons were 14 and 16 years old when I got sober. And he had me write them out on a little three-by-five card, the, the amends. And then he had another card. And on that card it said, I am so sorry that happened to you. I will spend the rest of my life being the very best mom I can be. And uh, what I did is I, 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 had, I made amends to both of my sons at the same time. I do not recommend that for my sponsees. But that's what I did. I did that. And when I got through reading my little cards, I said to them, I asked the questions, just as I was told to do, what the book says. Did I leave anything out? And do you have anything to say to me? And my sons were angry. And they started going off on me. I felt like I was being shot up with two Uzis. And I just kept, as they were talking, I just kept reading my little card. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I will spend the rest of my life being the very best mom I can be. And uh, there's been a lot of amends since then. And I made amends to my husband. I made amends to my, my mom and dad. And I can't say enough. Get your steps done and get to the amends. Because my daddy only lived one year and one month after I was sober. But what he got to do is he got to see me sober. And I will never take anything for that, that I got to make amends to my daddy and he got to see me sober. <clears throat> At any rate, uh, Dave and I, Got, we, I got into AA, and I, I was doing a lot of sleeping around. There's no other word for it. And uh, I just, you know, I just really liked the men. And at six months of sobriety, I'd met Dave. And uh, Dave and I were just friends. I did not have an affair with Dave, but he sponsored some of the men I had had an affair with. So he knew more about me than he needed to. And, but when I was three and a half years sober, and he was four and a half years sober, he came to me and he said, Polly, I'm in love with you, but I don't want to have an affair with you. I want to marry you. And uh, then Dave and I ran off and got married. We left Texas, married, but not to each other. And we got that all squared away later. And, but, uh, and that's been amazing. And what happened is, is uh, on October the 27th, this past October, Dave and I celebrated 40 years of marriage. And uh, it's the greatest, most wonderful thing that I have ever been able, I am still so in love with the man of my dreams. And uh, it was, it's just been a fabulous ride, but let me get past all that a minute. Uh, anyway, um, I had heard this lady talk in Austin, Texas, and uh, when I was three years sober, and I said, she touched my soul. She literally touched my soul. And that day, I said, if I'm ever anywhere close to where that lady lives, I'm going to ask her to sponsor me. And never gave it much thought again, except that I remembered her name, and I remembered she lived in Southern California. When Dave and I got married, we had and we were he was six years sober and I was five years sober. We had gone to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he got we ended up he ended up taking a job in Southern California. And as soon as we passed as soon as we got into Southern California, we were going we were gonna be in Santa Monica and uh we got to a telephone. I mean, we didn't have cell phones, you know, and all that kind of stuff. This is 1981. And so I called the intergroup office, and I said, do you know a woman by the name of Dottie Harris? And they said, yes. And I said, I'd like her phone number. 
and I got her phone number, and I called her. And I said, I heard you talk in Austin, Texas in 19, what would that have been, 79, 80, something like that. I heard you talk, and uh, I'd like to meet you. And she said, well, I will be at the Big Book Bellflower Group on Monday night at 8.30. Meet me there. And I met her there, and I asked her to sponsor me. And uh, Dottie, Dottie Harris was my sponsor, and she sponsored me for 33 years until the day she died. And uh, Dottie was different from Frank. Frank had given me this solid, he had, and Frank, I had a really hard time with God because I still thought I was going to burn in hell. And Frank used to say, Polly, just believe in my God. You can believe in my God. And he said, I did not find God in the Catholic Church, and I'm a priest. I found God in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you can use my God. And so I used Frank's God for until I met Dottie. I kept praying, and I, I do. I have a uh, Holly talks about. She prayed to her sponsor's God, and I prayed to Frank's God, and uh, I prayed to his God. And then I met Dottie, and of course I found out Frank had gotten sober at Long Beach Naval Hospital, and there was a guy named Frank Honeycutt who was Dave's sponsor, and then Dottie and all of them had gotten and taken care of Frank. I mean, it was just it was just this incredible picture that opened up that, I mean, only God can orchestrate. And, uh, and Dottie had this sweet, sweet God. And she had a very, very hard life. She had a blood disease that was very debilitating and kept her, it was very hard on her. She had a really high-profile divorce in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is just, you know, it's, that's a really hard thing because we're such an incestuous little group here. And uh, so that was really hard on her. And, uh, but she never lost faith. She just constantly had this sweet, sweet God. And I never could get rid of the guilt about my kids. Now, by now, my son is a full-blown drug addict and alcoholic. My other son is mutilating himself, cuts himself all the time. And I'm just like, my kids are dying right before my eyes. And I just, and, and Dottie was just so sweet about it. And she said, you know, you just have to put those boys in God's hands. And she just constantly had me putting them in God's hands. And she said, Polly, God lets us do do-overs. We get to repeat for correction. God lets us repeat for correction. And, uh, and I just would hear her, na- her words. And I've, had a, I've gotten to repeat for correction, especially with my kids. I have five grandchildren. I'm a roller coaster riding grandma. I have got to I got to be with those kids. My my sons and their wives would go on vacations for weeks at a time and I got to keep those kids. So if you want to talk about forgiveness, I have been forgiven the unforgivable. I hurt my sons deeply by what I did to them. And what has happened is they have so much forgiveness. That the, but the biggest thing of all is, is that they allowed me to be and keep their children. That not only did they keep telling me they forgave me, but they did. Uh, Dave and I moved to California, and here came James. He moved to California, too. And I'm telling you, this was a drug-running Venice Beach kid. And I was on my way to uh, an AA meeting, and uh, um, I got a phone call from my oldest son's wife that my oldest son had put a pair of scissors in his stomach, had tried one more time to take his life. And I was so devastated. James was down on Venice Beach doing God knows what. And... uh, at any rate, I walked into this AA meeting, and this AA meeting was one as a meeting I can't stand today. But it was one of those meetings. Anybody got a problem? 
And uh, I walked into this AA meeting. And that day, but that meeting saved my life. And I walked in there, and of course, I'm, you know, I'm like five years sober, and I've got my hand up, and I got a problem. And I told him about my sons. There's an old man in the back sitting, leaning against the wall with it on a two, two legs of a chair, you know, leaning against the wall. He said, you just need to turn those boys over. I thought, how do you want me to do that? And uh, I just stood back up, how do you want me to do that? And just totally out of control. But what happens is, whenever the student's ready, whenever the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And what happened was, is this lady, there was a double winner sitting in that, that meeting that night, and that lady walked up to me and she said, I'm taking you to an Al-Anon meeting. I will pick you up at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. And I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And what I did is those women put their arms around me, and they said, we are going to show you how to love your sons without it killing you. And uh, Al-Anon, I know today, for those of you, I have a very, very good friend from Southern California that's in this meeting today that's visiting. And I don't know what I would do if it were not for the program of Al-Anon, because that day, Al-Anon saved my sobriety. I know I was in so much pain that I would have had to have taken a drink of alcohol. And... Uh, a little while later, when I was six and a half years sober, my, old, my youngest son called me on the phone, and he said, Mom, I want what you have. And uh, I said, well, sweetheart, you're probably going to have to go to AA. And James hung up the phone and said, well, I don't want it that bad. <laughs> but what has happened is, is I've been able to walk this walk with my son for 36 years. I have been blessed with that. Because James has stayed sober, he is an active, active member in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and has been. He and Lon got sober together. Those two kids were running an Alatot group when they were in Texas. They were doing, they did so much service in Texas. And they were just two little peas in the pod doing all this stuff. It was just amazing. So those of you who know Lon, you know what an amazing member he is of Alcoholics Anonymous. He has been that way his entire sobriety. And he's 36 years sober. I love you. And it's just, it's just, you know... These people that are put in your path are just amazing. And I guess I want to kind of talk about that, about people who are put in your path. And a lot of people have been put in my path. Uh, you know, Dave and I have had the most amazing 40 years. Dave and I, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, have seen the world. We have been able to travel the world, and we didn't have the money, we didn't have a pot or a window, and we were able to travel the world because we drank too much whiskey and because of a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Life's in session. Just because you're sober doesn't mean that life's not in session. We lost our house. In 1993, Dave lost his job. He's a, he's a computer scientist. Oh, my God, headhunters were calling him all the time. And then the bottom fell out of aerospace in 1993, and our whole block went up for sale. So we ended up having our house repossessed, had to file bankruptcy. I was just horrified. And I know Frank said to me one day, he said, chicken, fabulous man used to call men the men partner and the women chicken and Frank said to me chicken you're going to Australia and I said Frank I'm not going anywhere I said Dave and I are filing bankruptcy what are people going to think of me they're going to wonder what step we're working if we're filing bankruptcy <laughs> and Frank said it ain't any of your business what anybody thinks 
but your very life depends on what you think of them. And I've had to learn that lesson really hard in my sobriety. I cannot think ill of anybody else. If I do, it's going to kill me. It's not going to kill them. It's going to kill me. And uh, so what happened is, is a miracle happened. Dave and I lost that house. And we had to rent a house. And we ended up renting this house that was really big, four bedroom, three baths, just Dave and I and two little dogs. And what happened for us for the next 10 years that we lived in that house is that women lived in that house with us and got sober. And 32 years ago, a woman lived with us in that house. And uh, she got sober. And uh, now, all these years later, almost another 20 years, it is 20 years, that woman is living with me again. And that woman retired and... uh, Today, she is living with me and helping me take care of Dave. These miracles happen, and they're just out of nowhere. They're just out of nowhere that these miracles continue to happen. Um, In 1993, I love this beautiful woman here who is signing for us. Because in 1993... Ryan, our first grandchild, was born. And I thought he was, I just was the happiest woman you ever saw. And when Ryan was, we kept thinking, Ryan just doesn't act like babies should act. And at 18 months, we had Ryan, we had him checked. What's wrong with Ryan? What's wrong with Ryan? He just doesn't make sounds. He doesn't do what other babies do. And we found out that Ryan was profoundly deaf. And I really thought that that was the end of his life, that this would be the end. And I haven't talked about Ryan in a long time, but I haven't seen a signer in a long time. It's been a few, been a couple of years since I've seen somebody stand up and sign. And uh, James right now is in Philadelphia. And that's where James lives, uh, Ryan lives outside of Philadelphia. And what happened to Ryan is, is that Ryan went to Rochester Institute of Technology. And Ryan uh, studied civil engineer. And what happened was, is Rochester, RIT is is a university, and it also has a deaf community. And they have uh, a university for two years, and then they have the regular university. Ryan was in the regular university, but he was able to hang with the deaf community. And Ryan today lives outside of Wilmington, Delaware. And he, I say, builds bridges, but he designs bridges. He's a civil engineer building bridges. And James says, I just cannot get over how well. He's got a beautiful, beautiful woman, and they're in love with each other, and she's hearing. But as James says, she signs like the wind. He says she's better than me. And it's miracle after miracle that keep happening. So I want to catch you up for today and tell you a few miracles. And uh, that miracle just... Really fast, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to run over. I just promised I wouldn't do that, but I, it looks like I am. Uh, the miracles today is that uh, five years ago, I was at Ann Pemberton's, oops, Ann's retreat. And Dave called me on the phone, and he said, uh, I can't have back surgery on Monday. They found a spot on my lung. And uh, Dave ended up having lung cancer. And it, that was all really fabulous. And Vicki and Lon were with me every step of the way. Vicki sat in that hospital with me hour after hour after hour. Then Dave had a back surgery. And they were, 
There again, and then another back surgery, and then two bladder surgeries, and Jim Powers, I don't know if it's Jim, Jim is here, he and Vicki, and Jim would come to the hospital every day, bring Dave an ice cream or whatever he brought him, and stay with him. And, uh, and then it ended up that Dave got pneumonia. He just really couldn't withstand all those surgeries. He's 80 years old. He was 80 years old at the time. And uh, his little old lungs just wouldn't take it. And so they ended up, he just was so near death, they ended up putting him in a uh, nursing home, taking him there. And Vicki said, do you mind if I ask Gary to come pray for Dave? And I said, no, that'd be wonderful. And Gary came, and he came, and he came. And Vicki said to me, said, uh, how would you like to go to church with me? And I said, I'd like that. And uh, I went to church with Vicki that day, and I just felt like God laid his hands on my shoulders. And uh, I want to tell you the biggest joke, that you just want to watch God, because he's going to pull some really big jokes on you. I swore, I mean, I went to church, but a non-denominational church, and I would never go back to the Baptist church. And I want you to know the biggest joke is Dave and I today are members of Southside Baptist Church. <laughs> and I knew that day that I went with Vicki that that was a day. And let me tell you what's even greater. Our church didn't open, West Connect. I love this group with all my heart and soul. It is such an active group, and we help each other so much. And uh, we couldn't go back to our church. And Lon and I had talked about it and talked about it. We wanted that meeting moved to Southside for a long time. <laughs> oh, sh- <laughs> And uh, at any rate, today, because that church didn't open, West Canet, that I love with all my heart, meets in Southside Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you my last miracle. That uh, Tons of miracles, but the really big ones. Uh, my oldest son, I never had, there was just always something between us. There was just, it just always felt like there was this wedge here. And I just never could have a relationship with my oldest son. And uh, be three years in November it was the same time Dave was having that. Dave was in that nursing home, and all this stuff was going on. It just seemed like the whole world was falling apart. And, uh, and we had to move. Everybody had to help us move because we lived in a, a condo that had stairs, and Dave couldn't make the stairs. And uh, so what happened is, is that Russ called me on the phone, and he said, uh, I'm going to rehab. And I'm like, what? I mean, uh, Russ hated anything to do with AA. And I think a lot of that is my fault. But so I fell in love so deep with AA that I put it before everything. I put it before my kids. I put AA before every single thing. And, uh, and I, I know he resented that terribly. And especially because we lived in Southern California, and I was traveling a lot. And I know that my youngest son said to him, he said, aren't you going to miss mom when she moves to Washington? He says, I'm not going to miss her. I never see her anyway, any time anyway. I never see her anyway. And uh, so, you know, it was just he, it was just a bad thing between us. And uh, I was with my son March, I know exactly the date because it was right before we shut down for the pandemic. And it was March 8th, and I was at a meeting with my son. And uh, I had gone there to Southern California with, and gone to a meeting with him. And uh, he never talks about AA. He never said anything. He just said he was going to be a, that he, and it was a, it's a musician's meeting, and he's a, he's a musician where they play music. And I went to that meeting with him.
And uh, after that meeting, my son put his arms around me, and he told me, Mom, I love you so much. And uh, that witch was gone. And I want you to know that my son was 59 years old when he got sober. 41 years I have been praying for my son. 41 years. And he got sober at 59. So what my message today is, it's in God's time. Everything is in God's time. It's not in my time. It's in God's time. And I had an 80th birthday party. And all my friends were there, and my whole family was there. And uh, my two sons gave me that party. And it's all different. Because you see, that wedge was alcoholism. And what happens is, it's a, alcoholism is a family disease, and we get well in this program. We have to do our part, and God does his part. And I am so grateful to be sober, and I am so grateful for AA. Thank you.